special report. Knowing how to invest your money is harder than ever before. Dealing with stock market volatility, record debt, and terrorist attacks requires new thinking. At U.S. Asset Management, we can help you see the world more clearly so that you can move beyond the chaos and invest with confidence. Call us, visit us online, or drop by our office. U.S. Asset Management, helping you make better decisions with your money. Pacific SITREP, where we tell you what's going on uh, in the naval situation in the Pacific and elsewhere. We are uh, honored to have with us today Commander Salamander. He's been with us before, a uh, long naval career. And uh, welcome, sir. Thanks for coming on. Well, I, I appreciate the invitation to come back. So let's jump right into it. The the, the naval situation, seemed, we've been reporting here that uh, – the, the naval forces are stretched. Uh, they are under fire in the Red Sea. Uh, and, you know, what is your thought on the overall naval situation for the U.S. Navy at this point? Well, it it's one of those situations that uh, a lot of people have been trying to ring the bell for a very mm -hmm. long time mm -hmm. that uh, we do not have the, the Navy that we need Giving that our obligations that that we have put on our our nation on a on a global scale, mm -hmm. and you can make these arguments in, in time of peace, and it might uh, make that point here and there, but until you really have a demonstration why we were making this argument, um, yeah, it, it doesn't get the purchase that you would hope with some people. Yeah, uh, and unfortunately, I think that's where we are. Is we can see that there are uh, places in the country that we've had relationships with for a long time that either have a need or a habit of needing our presence that we we can't disengage from. Most notably, Europe and the Middle East. Mm -hmm. um, but we also have a larger, uh, greater strategic challenge in the Pacific that is not waiting for us to figure out our lack of a better phrase, our legacy problem. And of course, that's the, the People's Republic of China and her ongoing rise. So we have a situation right now that uh, even though there was an announcement recently that in the in the Red Sea, we have a coalition of 20 nations. Uh, for those that have experience in Afghanistan, we're all kind of having a dark laugh in the background uh, because you have uh, a situation where, yeah, they're they're sending a staff officer and they want their flag on the patch, but they're not really uh, contributing in a way that's meaningful. And all you have to do is see uh, which naval units have engaged the variety of weapons that the Houthis are firing at ships in the Red Sea. Uh, and who is not to see what type of coalition we really have. We have extended deployments of ships uh, that uh, we're going back to what we saw uh, a few years ago mm -hmm. when the Navy's because six months is what we consider a normal deployment. Uh, for a while, we said eight to nine months would be the new normal. And we started to trend back to that. Now we're going back to extending people two months or longer. Uh, in, in recent memory, we've had expeditionary strike groups uh, that are based on our long deck amphibs have extended for as long as 11 months. Mm. And the, these things don't happen just in isolation. We tell the stories about the individual ships and the sailors 
who, and for those that have, have deployed for six months, know what that is like, can imagine what it's like to go for eight, nine, or 11 months. No, it, but destroy, it destroys families, it destroys lives, it destroys it, hardware. In the, yeah. the last part is what compounds the problem we already have with undercapitalized, i.e. too small Navy, is you have maintenance schedules that are on, out of whack. You have supplies that are not designed um, to have enough depth to be able to support these ships that are being used as much as they are. And in a little parlor game that is convenient in the short run, in the short run, but is really us lying to ourselves consciously. I like that Solzhenitsyn yeah. line about uh, let the lie come in the world and may it even win, but mm -hmm. not through me. Yeah, uh, I will not contribute to the lie. We tell ourselves that we can run the ships like this and have them live 40 to 50 years. When you get past 30 years, you're, uh, the aviation community has their cost per flight hour. You have something similar in the surface force. These old ships are incredibly expensive to keep. Yeah. Uh, but it's not the problem for the people right now. That's There's uh, a problem with a culture of stewardship that's been lost. It used to be that people planned our fleets and husbanded our assets looking for not so much what happened during their PCS cycle, i.e. when they have the job, but what are they doing to make sure that the person that has the job, two or three individuals down the road, that you you're, you're, you're have a stewardship of your responsibilities such that their, their, their job is easier than yours. That's been lost. And so that's the knock-on effect of the challenge that we see. That being said, these things have to be done. Yeah. And I think you also need to be very careful on who you listen to and why you listen to them. And not that I'm trying to, to pimp my Substack, but my, my, my post coming out tomorrow, um, it's actually a, a tale of two navies. I use some of the recent statements that were made by the chief of naval operations recently combined with uh, a recent article uh, by matt hipple where there are two different views of um what our requirements are for our navy and for our fleet and uh, be careful listening to people who have lots of authority but they may not be speaking quite um, as candidly as they should because as they perceive uh, what is their, their, their job responsibilities. And we are, as a result, um, we aren't just lying to ourselves. We're misrepresenting the reality to both uh, the people's elected representatives and the people themselves. When so you, you're them, saying that because of, uh, for lack of a better term, political pressure, they're saying things that they know may be not true. Is that... Or not so much that isn't true uh -huh. or is uh, cleverly and comfortably worded. For instance, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll use an example of somebody who's not holding office anymore, but I consider it was hugely damaging to the long-run strategic requirements of the United States. And that's Admiral Mike Mullen and his mm -hmm. thousand-ship Navy. Whereas opposed to making the argument 
and having that argument be used as a method to uh, procure additional funds, uh, he talked about a thousand ship Navy as if uh, it's not just the U.S. Navy, but it's all of our treaty allies Navy that in reality, we don't have a 298 ship Navy. We have a thousand ship Navy because when we smile pretty and uh, make a phone call, all of a sudden the French, British, Indian, and Japanese Navy are going to come form up alongside of us. That is not true. And again, yeah. going back to the comment I said recently about the quote 20 ship, I mean, 20 nation coalition we have in the Red Sea. That's just, that's not what we're looking at. And so it, it, I have been long critical of a lot of these senior flag officers who uh, I think have been working to deplete and implement policies which are damaging to the United States. I mean, and, you know, I could go down the list of names, but maybe we don't need to do that. But I, as a rule, it seems like the senior officer corps is not working for the people of the United States. Some of them are scared because of political reasons. They don't want to lose their jobs. Others, I just think, are nefarious. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, you have to look at them as individuals. Um, mm -hmm. I, and I think a lot of them, I've, in this, there's a little bit of this that you have to do simply because of the reality of our incentives and disincentives for sure. our senior uniform leadership. But I've used a term that I've always found it important that our senior leaders remember that they are working in D.C., but they should not become of D.C. And the fact that, yes, you work, uh, the U.S. military is led and run by civilian political appointees of the present president, but that does not mean that you should be part of their political program um, or to run with their political talking points for a domestic political mindset where that can be injurious. And I think, um, again, this people respond to the incentives and disincentives they find themselves in. And I think the present chief, chief of Naval operations um, uh, is doing the best that she uh, can do, mm -hmm. but she's, she's been in the DC environment for a long time. And she recently said uh, in San Diego, when discussing the size of our Navy, things that are true, but they're really not true. And I'll, I'll, I'll use an example, a quote of her quote. It's platforms on, under, and above the sea. It's the networks that enable them. It's cyber. It's work in space. It's work within the joint force. If you look at some of the things that our sister services are doing to get after this challenge of China, and you put these pieces together, we are the dominant combat force, unquote. Okay, there's a few things that's going on in that combat. All that is true. There's nothing false there. However, it is covering up a larger truth. The larger truth is the fact that we are not the world's largest Navy anymore. The People's Republic of China is. Mm-hmm. They also, though they do have a global deployment capability, they do not see themselves as a global force. They see themselves as a regional force. And you can define that regional force as what's between the uh, Red Sea <laughs> mm -hmm. and the International Dateline. 
they have a concentration of forces. They have a much younger Navy. Their ability to sustain their larger Navy and to grow their Navy even larger is or literally orders of magnitude greater than the United States. We are not the arsenal of democracy anymore. Yeah. We are the just-in-time arsenal that is designed for peacetime operations. This The People's Republic of China, when you look at their shipyard capacity, which is, this is not an error, there's not a decimal point problem here. And you'll, I, I quote this from Matt Hipple's article yesterday. The Office of Naval Intelligence, who works for the Chief of Naval Operations, I would have to say, um, put out open source. The People's Republic of China, their shipbuilding industry has 232 times the shipbuilding capacity of the United States. They have over 50% of the total global shipbuilding capacity. And a lot of people will say, well, you know, we can't, we can't do this. This is too long to do, et cetera, and so forth. That's, that's excuses um, mm-hmm. because the, the People's Republic of China hasn't always been this way. Yeah. This is a byproduct of their national policy of the last 20 years. In 2004, China, China only represented about 10% of the global ship production. Now they have over 50%. That was, that was a conscious decision on their part. And what going back to what the, 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 the chief of naval operations goes, this is a great frustration of mine. Uh, one of the worst things to happen to our uh, ability to, to have a effective conversation about what's the best way to meet the national security requirements, requirements of the United States is from the peop, good people with the best intention, intentions. After Goldwater Nichols, we developed this joint concept, and you have to say certain things about this joint concept, whether or not that's actually the best thing. So we've, we've lost the creative friction of a good, healthy argument and conversation. We no longer have a situation where MacArthur and Nimitz uh, can mm. argue with what's the best way to approach the battle in the Pacific. We no longer have a situation where you can have in the post-World War II era, the revolt of the admirals to push back against the Air Force and the Army. Mm-hmm. Everybody's got to be joint. So mm-hmm. as opposed to addressing the fact that we have not properly capitalized our shipbuilding industry for both civilian and military purposes and the people behind it, we have to make excuses and look for band-aids of talking about the, word, the, the word joint warfighting force. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, and that and that's unfortunate because in the Western Pacific, that is, if we should find ourselves in a conflict in the Western Pacific, that is a maritime and an aerospace battle. Yeah. And we are, by nature and by design, a maritime and aerospace nation that has been forced due to a lot of Cold War and post-Cold War issues, to pretend that we are equally a land power. And so what should be our comparative advantage, which is sea power and air power, is being suboptimally developed because we have this joint system that does not allow our senior leaders 
to advocate for and to argue in favor of why we should have more of our national security monies go towards sea power, our maritime industry, air power, and our strategic airlift, because we have to pretend that the Army is equally important to our larger, larger national security concerns, which plays into another pet topic of mine where I'm in kind of in alignment with uh, some people like uh, uh, Bridge Colby, where uh, as a result, we have allowed our friends and allies who are land powers like Germany, like France, like Italy, to spend less for the Alliance defense on land because they have the U.S. Army on yes. speed dial to fill the gaps where they should be spending. Completely agree. And maybe we'll have another discussion on that. What about the exposure of U.S. naval assets to kind of asymmetric warfare in the Red Sea and elsewhere? It seems like we're just waiting for the Golden BB to, to hit. What are your thoughts? Well, it is a numbers game. Mm -hmm. um, there's, oh, what's that number? I think it's, yeah, here we go. Um, as of a couple of days ago, we've, uh, our warships in the Red Seas have successfully intercepted 95 or more drones, anti-ship ballistic missiles, and anti-ship cruise missiles. It's uh, a great unscheduled range time. Our Aegis guys are drowning in great data, which is going to make our ships better in the long run. But they've also used some unmanned surface via, uh, vessels against us. I don't know what the exact number of that. We've been able to take care of those. We have to be right 100% of the time. They just need to be right once. But the U.S. Navy and our warships are human institutions and human products. They are not perfect. So, you know, it, all they have to do is get one through. Celebrate the new year. We're having the biggest sale ever on overstock clearance and brand new products. For example, save 60% on our Goose Down comforters, the best comforters ever. They go perfectly with our MyPillow bed sheets and duvet covers. Save 25% on our brand new kitchen towels. They're made with the same technology as our famous My Towels. Our initial quantities are extremely low, so get them now before they go. Our seasonal flannel sheets are finally in. You save up to 50% and they sell out fast every year, so order now. They're truly the best flannel sheets you'll ever sleep on. Or save up to 80% on all our clearance items. And this is where it gets even better. For a limited time, your entire order ships absolutely free. So go to MyPillow.com or call the number on your screen. Use that promo code to get deep discounts on all MyPillow products. And for a limited time, your order ships absolutely free. Yeah. And for those know know what happens to a modern thin-skinned warship um, when they get, uh, get hit, it's not pretty. Yeah. Luckily, our Arleigh Burks, uh, were designed uh, during the Cold War. And actually, they're, they're not armored per se, but they were designed to take hits and fight pretty well compared to our, a lot of our allied ship that our, our allies build ships that are a little more fragile mm -hmm. uh, than ours. One thing you can be proud of of our Navy is we do, we do make the extra effort to make it more survivable. But the, 
the issue we have, and you can see a reflection of the challenge that we, we have against some of these platforms with what the Russians have experienced in the Black Sea. Yeah, just recently. Yeah. Yep. And basically what the Ukrainians have done, which is really smart, they have literally taken the obnoxious people you find in summertime on their jet skis. They've taken their jet skis, they've automated them, and they've turned them into weapons. Mm. Uh, very cost effective, very efficient, but they're very hard to detect because modern warships are designed like we've seen recently to take out anti-ship cruise missiles recently that having the even be the ability to intercept anti-ship ballistic missiles is a bright, shiny and new, new ability that we should all be proud of. Mm -hmm. But what we've not so much forgotten to do, but have undercapitalized to do is what do you do against the slow, dumb and stupid? Yeah. And they're able to slip in. It's like, um, uh, you can show up for a long range gunfight, but if the guy's able to sneak behind you and barefoot with a knife and stick it between your ribs, your night vision goggles aren't going to do you any good because you weren't looking for what's in the same building that you're in. Same yeah. type of idea. Um, there's some things that we can do for soft kills on that. Uh, I think everybody should be pretty proud of their surface Navy uh, being able to do what they've been able to do in the Red Sea. Um, but about, there's, some, there's some technology down the road that people should be concerned about uh, because we could use some additional weapons on our ships to better cover that threat. What about um, depletion of, uh, you know, ammunition, for lack of a better word? Um, are we getting worse there? And, and that's that's a big problem. And boy, you could we could spend hours just talking about that. But what I'd encourage people to do who aren't really familiar, um, mm -hmm. if you can, anybody can pull up the uh, the Arleigh Burke class destroyers and look at their VLS cells. That's the cells that hold their little uh, like a chessboard on, mm -hmm. on the deck of a warship that holds between one and four. Mark 41 VLS can hold up to four ESSMs, which are short range defensive missile, you know, as part of your layered defense. But usually they carry one and it could be a Tomahawk mm -hmm. uh, cruise missile. It could be uh, a, a, a rocket thrown torpedo ASROC from the old days, though you usually don't see too many of those. It depends on what mission loadout you have. So you never really know when you look at your, you know, 96, 120, 41, whatever warship you're looking at, you, uh, some of the British ships, it's a little easier to tell because they can't put one weapon in there. But, but the American Mark 41 VLS, you're looking at it, you don't know whether there's a Tomahawk land attack cruise missile in that cell, whether there's a SM2 or an SM3, whether there's you know, an SM6, what mix they have in there. Mm -hmm. So, And you also don't know what the um, what routine they're having to launch their weapons. For instance, you might hear somebody say, shoot, look, shoot, or is it shoot, shoot, look, shoot? What that means is you have an anti-ship cruise missile that you come in, you know, engage track two, 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 whatever. Mm -hmm. So are they going to fire one missile at it, see if they shoot it down, and if they, if they miss, they shoot again, that shoot, look, shoot? Or mm -hmm. if you don't have much time, are you going to do a shoot, shoot, look, shoot? 
Yeah. Which is fire two missiles, wait for one to hit. Are you going to do, um, for you Star Trek fans, one of my favorite gifts is fire everything because yeah. you don't have much time. Yeah. We, so if you have, and some of these aren't your anti-ship cruise missiles. They're what I call your flying lawnmower. These are prop-driven, though they have some jet-driven now, but they're mostly, uh, a lot of people have seen them in um, Ukraine where they basically have a push pusher propeller mm-hmm couple of hundred miles an hour if you're lucky drone with a, a nice seeker head on it uh you still have to shoot those down you might be able to use your your five inch multi-purpose gun on some of the slower targets but you may not have that luxury so if you have 16 of those coming at you two yeah. two anti-ship cruise missiles a couple of anti-ship ballistic missiles and a partridge in a pear tree they're all coming at you and the merchant ships you're uh, you're defending so you're going to shoot out what 20, 25, 50, who knows missiles uh, to order to take those down. So what do you have left right. in your VLS cells? We, we made a conscious decision decades ago for peacetime reasons that we were not going to have the ability to reload our VLS cells at sea, which means if you're in the red sea and you need to realize reload your VLS cells, because you've used, if you have 96 cells, you shot 50 of your remaining 46, 20 of them are land attack cruise missiles. Three of the cells are broken. So that just leaves you a couple of dozen and change uh, anti-ship, I mean, yeah. anti-aircraft missiles. So you can take one more today and then you're Winchester and all you've got yeah. left is your close-in weapon systems to defend your ship. Forget about for defending anybody else. So you've got to either head hundreds of hundreds or thousands of nautical miles east or west to go get a reload. So yeah. somebody's going to have to take your place. And uh, a few weeks ago, up on my sub stack, I outlined, at least at that moment in time, the number of ships that have uh, in-chopped the Mediterranean through Gibraltar to come into the Red Sea to backfill uh, one of our carrier strike groups there are to go straight into the Red Sea to help in defense there. Because a lot of those ships, some of which uh, have been deployed since July, have had to go home for a variety of reasons, which are classified, I assume, mm-hmm. um, uh, and other ones simply because you have to have a ship go back to one of our ports that we can reload um, but we need to have somebody to take their place on station. It's yeah. a serious problem, especially when you consider, and I try to remind everybody, we have first tier, second tier, third tier, and fourth tier potential adversaries at, at sea. Mm-hmm. The Houthis aren't even a nation state. They're a rebel organization that are basically running a pirate organization for you old right. cold warriors in what was roughly North Yemen. Yeah. Um, they're a client state of Iran. When you look at a first-rate adversary, such as today's People's Republic of China, when you decide that you want to go west of the uh, international dateline, go west of Guam, and interfere with their larger plans, and if things decide that they want to become interesting in the Western Pacific, you're not dealing with the Houthis. You're dealing yeah. with uh, 1.3 billion citizens of the People's Republic of China and their military and their industry who are going to try to stop you 
from pursuing your nation, our nation's self-interest in that area. That yeah. that's a hard battle. Um, Mackenzie Aiglin uh, put out uh, an article on Monday, I think, that put some hard numbers out there, and uh, people. Again, let's go to Ukraine for a second as an example. I've done this in my life as an operational planner. You tell me what you, you tell me what you want me to brief you, and if I want to, I can brief it to you. You want a seventy-two-hour war? I'll brief you a seventy-two-hour war. Uh, you want my honest opinion of that? I'll give you my honest opinion of it. But if my boss tells me to shut my mouth, <laughs> I'll shut my mouth. So it was very clear to everybody that. Putin was briefed a 72-hour war mm -hmm. by his staff, and mm -hmm. they convinced him this is what we, this is what's going to happen. This is what, well, just because you click your heels twice doesn't make things turn the way you want to. Yeah, the so, enemy gets to shoot back. Yeah. So that, now he's he's faced with a three-year war. There are people who have convinced a lot of very influential people in both sides of the political spectrum that we can deal with any potential nasty things involving the Western Pacific inside of 72 hours. Um, that's, that's not realistic. No. We need to be prepared, not for a 96 uh, hour war. We need to prepare for a 96 week or 96 month war because the old cliche applies here. Yeah. War is a dark room. Sure. You, you walk in that door, you don't know what's in there till you flip the switch. Uh, we, you might have a desert storm where everything goes your way and you look like heroes, or you might have yourself in Afghanistan where two decades later, later you drench your nation in disgrace and make excuses for it. Yeah. Um, and, and unfortunately, we are not buying the Navy, the Air Force, or worse than that, we're not buying the weapons to carry on our aircraft and to put in our warships and our aircraft. Where's all the money going? Is it going just, is it getting grifted? Is it, is it buying crap we don't need? Is it going for DEI? I mean, we're spending a trillion dollars a year, right? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, it's easy to say, well, uh, we could, we could buy more, with a closer appreciation of looking for fraud, waste, and abuse. And that, that is a non-zero number, but that's not where the, the big things are going. Where the big things are going is really in lost opportunity cost. Yeah. For instance, you look at, uh, I don't have the figures handy, but it's, it's enough to make you sick. You look at the billions of dollars that were spent on the DDG 1000 program. You look at the billions of dollars in the tens of thousands of people to this day that are still involved with manning, equipping, building, and buying the littoral combat ship of both classes. Uh, it, it's not sarcastic to say what's going on in the Red Sea. It's combat in the littorals. It requires lots of ships. What ships are not in the Red Sea right now? are littoral combat ships because they cannot conduct combat in the littorals, even though they're warships. That is where a lot of the money went to. 
We wow. just simply did not buy what we needed to buy. The Arleigh Burks that everybody loves, and I love them too. I occasionally joke, we're going to build them to the crack of doom because they're the only warship we have that's of any use. Whole one was commissioned when I was a newly minted, I think I was still a Lieutenant JG at the time. And I've been retired since 2009. Um, that is where a lot of the money went to. You also look at the uh, amount of money the army has spent on things like the uh, uh, non-ironically named for a different period of time, the Crusader self-propelled um, artillery system that was never developed. The Comanche helicopter, billions and billions was spent. Nothing ever made a shadow on the ramp. Mm. We have a program management problem that's incredibly inefficient. We also, you, we've heard a lot about recruiting, which is we have a recruiting problem. But what we really have is a force imbalance problem where we have, if you really want to look at efficiencies, we have a huge, huge problem with staff bloat. We may have just in the Navy, 22,000 gap at sea billets. But yeah. if, if, if you and I sat down for a weekend and I was able to get hold of the, the manning documents for all the shore base staff, and I was given access to the Unix database that they have at Millington where all the Navy's manpower go, you and I could look at, you have your... BSC, your billet sequence code, those are your individual's jobs. Uh, you have the, the BSC that are actually funded, which means the Navy are paying for those billets. Uh, we could go through and look at those job responsibilities, and I'll guarantee you, you and I could take care and get rid of 20% of, of those shore billets. Mm -hmm. If you gave me an extra weekend, I could get rid of another probably 15 to 20% of that. You and I could also consolidate probably 20 to 30% of the staff positions. We could even look at uh, Desron, Destroyer Squadron Manning, which are at sea staff Mannings, compare it, I would say, give me the Manning document for a Desron today versus a Desron in 1989. Uh, and you and I could do some interesting things with that. So that that's part of the whole um, bureaucracy. Building, building a bureaucracy, not a warfighting force right. for, if, if, for political reasons, I think. There's, there's a very similar graph I know it exists in Millington, but it's it's a it's it's a nationally held secret because it's it, it starts uncomfortable conversations. A lot of people have seen the graph of the last thirty years in the education part of our nation: uh, number of teachers versus number of staff. Yeah. Whether you're talking about high schools or colleges, there's a very similar problem in the U.S. military. We also have a problem, and when when we were up to our ears in actual real combat um, back in the, I think this was somewhere between 2005 and 2008, U.S. Marine Corps did a really interesting study. Uh, they said, I want to know, and I, I, I'll be, I may be wrong here, plus or minus 12 months, but I need to know, basically the Commandant of the Marine Corps said, I want to know every Marine here who has not deployed in the last 36 months mm -hmm. and I want them deployed in the next 12 months. 
We have a lot of people in uniform, and again, for very nice reasons, but this, this is not a charity. And yeah. I've had this conversation when I was in uniform too. We have a lot of people that are non-deployable in the Navy. The yeah. Navy should not be a jobs program. The Navy should be a military organization. If you are not deployable, but you are using up a billet, especially a shore billet. Let's take these sailors a, a few years ago that came back from a nine-month or 11-month deployment, and they're ready to roll to shore duty. And they can't roll to a shore duty because X percent, and this, that percentage is in the double digits, well into the double digits, of those shore duty billets are being held by people that can't roll to sea duty because they're non-deployable. That, limits that would the, be because they're out of shape or they don't have the MOS or whatever you call it, or they don't. Not physically. For a yeah. variety of, of physical and medical reasons, they're non-deployable. Yeah. But they're, they're holding shore billets. They should be medically retired. Correct. For, yeah. you know, back in, and anybody who's been in the military any length of time has done this. Uh, honorable discharge under, um, you know, general discharge under honorable conditions due to needs of the service. Mm -hmm. um, we used to do that for people for uh, reasons of motherhood or people who are diagnosed with um, um, narcissistic personality disorder with sociopathic tendencies. Yeah. It's not, not their fault, but their, their diagnosed medical condition makes them non-conducive to the military service. Thank, thank you very much for your effort, but we need to let you go. Um, we had back in the early 1990s, a thing called the IRAD, the Involuntary Release from Active Duty, where they had to cut, they had to cut officer numbers uh, dramatically. And so people that had eight-year or seven-year obligations at the flight school, all of a sudden were told, you know what, you're actually, we're a ROTC guy, so you have a Naval Reserve Commission. You're just leaving the Navy in six months, even though you thought you were going to be here for seven years. We wish you the best of luck yeah. in uh, the, the 1992 economy. Um, that also is where a lot of that waste comes from. So that, that's a really long and rambling answer. Where is that money going to? Uh, it's not the people are that we have a bunch of crooks who are stealing large amounts of money from our military are that our military is criminally corrupt. Um, I think that there are larger and more nefarious reasons. If we had a bunch of thieves and crooks, that would be an easy fix. But yeah. what we what we have is we have a system where there's an old joke that the, 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 the product is the process. Um, when, and that's true in a lot of ways. But there's also... A problem with a lack of accountability. Yes. Where um, it's a leadership issue. It, it is where you know you know the old the old joke from office space. You know, tell me what exactly do you do here? Yeah. Tell yeah. me exactly what you have done in the last three palm cycles. You know, half decade to a decade, however you want to measure it, that has actually produced something that displaces water, makes a shadow on the ramp or put something in the hands of a Marine that yeah. gives him the ability to survive today's fight and to fight tomorrow. Commander, I got to end it there because we're up against the time limit for this mm. section, but um, thank you. I want to have you back because I love your insight. Well, I appreciate the opportunity and uh, yes, yeah, uh, we've got plenty of stuff to talk about. 
just uh, I'd love to come on again if you ever have Excellent. the opportunity. Yeah, a few weeks down the road, I'll, I'll uh, take you up on that. Thank you very Perfect. much. You're welcome. Take care. Bye. You too. Our world is changing rapidly. Many crucial systems we depend upon are collapsing. And the most important system that is failing is the food supply. Mr. President, this council is more than aware of the multiple challenges and threats the world is facing today. But the threat of famine, people starving slowly to death, must be a red line. Now, these food prices are going to keep going up and up, and they're going to keep feeding excuse after excuse, narrative after narrative. Yeah, where so you're going to have to get off that treadmill and start getting more autonomous with your own food growing. You want to make sure that you can eat, because frankly, food is the biggest issue as we are going through these transitions. But amidst the chaos, there is a path to resilience. Marjorie Wildcraft is the female leader of the survival and preparedness movement. Marjorie has taught millions of people how to grow an abundance of food in a grid-down situation even if you have no experience, are older, or out of shape. I've spent decades finding the fastest, easiest, and funnest ways for the average person to be able to grow a lot of food. I've created a step-by-step -step process that's so simple that even kids to elders have been using it in order to grow a lot of their own food. And you can too, even if you have no experience, you're older or you're out of shape. Growing your own food is like printing your own money. Get started today.